everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have a fun episode because we'll be doing our Oscar Rewind, but a little differently. We're also excited to have our guest, Mr. Brian Rowe, with us. He writes for In Session Film and has his own type of semi-centennial rewind podcast, but I'll let him tell you more about himself and his podcast. It's nice to have you on, Brian. Nice to see you again. We've been on your pod, but welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is a huge thrill. I love your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're so excited uh, for you to join us today to talk about the 50th anniversary of some of these films. Like Nick, you mentioned, we're doing this rewind a little bit differently. So instead of going through the five nominees for Best Picture, we will discuss the Best Picture winner, The French Connection, and then we each picked a nominee. So we'll talk through any of those. They can be nominees in any category. So Brian, you selected The Last Picture Show. I mm-hmm. selected Clute and Nick selected Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> which is a nominee. We can guarantee that. One nomination. Crazy in to the me. most bizarre of categories that I would never have expected. Willy Wonka should have gotten at least seven or eight, in my opinion. <laughs> Completely You're agree. me. <laughs> So Brian, if you could just introduce yourself, talk about Film at 50, your podcast, and then I think our listeners would love to hear how you got into film. Yeah, so I've been doing my Film at 50 podcast since September of 2020. We specifically look at movies that were released 50 years ago, and often it's like to the week, like when the episode drops, that movie came out within a few days of that day 50 years ago. And it's something I've been doing since 2017. I read Mark Harris's amazing book, Pictures at a Revolution, where he looked at the films of 1967 that were nominated for Best Picture. And I thought, you know, it'd be really cool to go back and look at the films of the late 60s and just do it kind of in order, like to the year. For 1970 and 2020, I decided this could be a podcast. It's kind of a cool, it's kind of a niche. It was kind of a cool idea. And it would give me a chance to look at films of the 1970s, which is my favorite decade of movies. There are so many movies I had never seen before that I continue have not have not seen that I'm discovering on the podcast, which is really fun. I've loved movies since I was a kid. I mean, my earliest memories are going to the movies with my dad every Sunday. He would take me to a lot of R-rated films when I was very young, like 9, 10, 11 years old. <laughs> my first R-rated movie was True Lies, which I think I was oh eight God. or nine years old. And my mom, too. They didn't really care. They, they knew early on that I had a love cinema that was different from every other kid and so early on I was seeing all these great movies and by high school I was making films I went to film school and college I continued to write film reviews do the podcast Uh, any day without a movie is a bad one in my view I don't know about you guys (laughs) oh yeah completely I try to watch one at least every day I feel like so and I relate to your comment too about like having parents that let you watch everything I know I've talked about that before um, on our (laughs) show but it definitely like broadens your horizons with types of movies that you like for sure and genres that you can get into so I love that yeah and I think film is so exciting it's not just about the new movies you can also look at back at at a new movie you've never seen from 50 years ago And if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. And there's so many great discoveries of the 1970s, which is so much fun. Absolutely. Do you have like a favorite film that you have watched so far through your show? It can be from this year or from the previous year. Well, we might be talking about one today. I mean, my favorite film of 1971 is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Is it like the best 
like Oscar movie of 71, maybe not. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I already had some favorites from 71. But the one I'm going to be talking about today is one I had seen maybe once before many years ago. I didn't remember it very much. I really get excited when I'm looking at films for the podcast that I know nothing about. And I just put it on. I maybe know an actor or two. A movie like Monty Walsh, which we talked about, a Western with uh, Lee Marvin that knew nothing about it. And it just blew me away. That's always really exciting. Well, let's get started with your pick then, The Last Picture Show. (laughs) Description here. In 1951, a group of high schoolers come of age in a bleak, isolated, atrophied North Texas town that is slowly dying, both culturally and economically. It's directed by Peter Bogdanovich, written by Peter Bogdanovich and Larry McMurtry, who adapted Mm -hmm. his own novel. It stars Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepard, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, and Ellen Bernstein. Four awards at the BAFTAs, it won Screenplay, Supporting Actor for Johnson, and Supporting Actress for Leachman. It was also nominated for Film, Director, Supporting Actress for Eileen Brennan, another powerhouse. This Mm -hmm. cast is amazing. Mm -hmm. It was nominated at the DGA and WGA. At the New York Film Critics Circle, it won Screenplay, Supporting Actor for Johnson, and Supporting Actress for Burston. And then at the Oscars, it won two, Supporting Actor for Johnson and Supporting Actress for Leachman. And then it was also nominated for six others in Picture, Director, Supporting Actor for Bridges, Supporting Actress for Burston, Adapted Screenplay, and Cinematography. So first off, I know you've discussed many of this year's nominees on your podcast, Brian. So what significance does this movie have for you? What made you choose this one in particular? So outside of Willy Wonka, which I just have nostalgic love for, I have since I was a mm-hmm. kid, I think the greatest film of 1971, I still have four more to watch for the podcast. I've seen basically everything of 71. I think, I don't even think it's close. I think The Last Picture Show is the greatest film of the year. I just think it's so beautifully done and a, an incredible ensemble. I love the kind of quietness to it. This look at the small town in 1951 which I love the black and white cinematography really gives you the sense of that town in that specific period. And just the way that the movie is never forcing a plot on you. You just spend time with these characters and they're all so interesting. I said on my podcast that the movie could follow any one of these characters and I would be happy for it. The fact that we only get little glimpses at all of these people, I feel like makes the movie even richer. I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Yeah. So I also, I had seen this movie before and I completely agree with you about like the black and white um, cinematography here and the look of it. And I think it's important to note like Peter Bogdanovich, when this movie started filming, he was married to Polly Platt, who was Mm -hmm. the production designer on this film. And she, I think also did a fantastic job of making this film really beautiful and period correct. I think what stands out to me about the last picture show is just that you know, Bogdanovich is this character who I knew, really, I have this giant book of interviews that he did with Mm. different filmmakers who he was like obsessed with learning their craft. And I had always thought of him really as this like student of film. And I think you can see that very much so in this movie that he is admiring the old Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. He's looking at this theater in their town and what is kind of decaying there. And he, through his filmmaking, he's admiring those directors of his past, right? Like Ford and Hawks and Wells, who helped him on this film a bit. But he's doing things that make him, I think, a signature director of the new Hollywood, too. So I like looking at this film, I think, as a bridge between 
old Hollywood and new Hollywood, um, especially coming into the seventies. So I'm glad that you picked it. It's a, it's an interesting one to talk about, I think. Yeah. And what's so striking about his directorial career is that his first movie targets from 1968 is like, it's like this low budget kind of genre piece with Boris Karloff. And there's really nothing in targets that sets you up for what he's capable of in the last picture show. It has such a different feel and he, it feels like he's made like eight films in between to get to this point, but there was only one before this, which makes it all the more remarkable, I think. Nick, what did you think? This was very bleak. Um, <laughs> I think you mentioning the cinematography right off the bat is interesting because Peter was housemates with Orson Welles, which mm -hmm. blows my mind. And Newsweek had called this movie the most impressive work by a young American director since Citizen Kane. So I think those parallels between... Citizen Kane and The Last Picture Show and what's happening and this rise and fall of people, the town, this image of the American ideal. And I love the women in this movie. You know, we can talk about the ending and if that plays well for both of you. I think that was a bit jarring for me. I love the ending, not to interrupt <laughs> you, but I, no, go I, for I it. really like it. I feel like it fits perfectly with what this movie is maybe trying to tell us or about these characters and how they're just kind of stuck there. And mm -hmm. they're just doing all these things that they're kind of unaware of why they're doing them or why they're there and how they can or can't like move out of this space. So it feels, I don't know, it just, it feels right. I think for what the Cloris Leachman character would do and for Sonny, that he would kind of go through all of this in the movie and then come back to her at the end. And that is kind of how their relationship ends the movie. I don't know. I like, I like that. Yeah. I love, I love so many characters in this. I do think Ruth played by Cloris Leachman might be my favorite. Just this woman who her husband treats her as if she doesn't exist anymore. And so she turns this young man for comfort and the way she blows up at him at, in the last scene. I do. I think it just like, like the perfect ending to this movie because here is another character who is kind of being forgotten like this town. <laughs> and it just, I feel like, I feel like her performance in that moment, even though apparently she told the director Bogdanovich, she said, could I get another take? I don't think I nailed that one. And Bogdanovich told her, no, I don't need to do another take. You just won the Academy Award. I guess oh that's God. what he said to her on the set. <laughs> yeah. That might be made up. I don't know. But I just think she is so moving in that moment. The fact that it's the first take, too. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> she really is just amazing in that final scene. Definitely. I think one of my, she's my favorite in the ensemble, too. I think just her character to me is like the most complex. Like we, I think, get some of these types of wives in small town America through like different TV shows that we've had and through different movies. But she, to me, we we always see her for the most part alone or with Sunny. Mm -hmm. And I think you learn so much about her. And for Cloris Leachman as an actor, I think that's really hard to achieve that kind of emotional hold over your audience. And she really does it. I always, whenever she was on screen, I just really felt for her. And, mm -hmm. you know, having a relationship with someone that young, like that's hard for, I think, an audience necessarily to like empathize with you. But I feel mm -hmm. like what she brings to this character, you do, I think, want to know more about her and you just want her to like feel some sort of happiness or fulfillment in the story. Yeah. There's a shot of her just sitting on a bed alone. I think she's waiting for Sonny to come and he's not, <laughs> and she's just sitting on a bed and it's just so sad without any dialogue, you know, exactly what she's thinking. 
Mm-hmm. And I think in the long, long scope of her career, I mean, she's really, I feel like today thought of as, as a comedian. Like people think of her as like Young Frankenstein and Mel Brooks. And this one performance really showed what she was capable of as a dramatic actress, which I love. Nick, what did you think of her performance or did you have other like people in the ensemble who you were drawn to? I don't think it's fair to compare the actresses. You know, these three are these names. I didn't know they were in this movie and I was kind of blown away. Eileen has a much smaller performance, so I understand why she wasn't awarded. And also as a dramatic actress, like this is a sharp turn from Clue. So, (laughs) but I think with Ellen Burstyn, I think that was another hopefully not relatable, but understandable character. I think Cloris and Ellen's characters are both going through so much, but so differently. The fact that the daughter would sleep with the guy and then she would come crying to the mom. I was like, a little cringe. (laughs) Even though it's like, yes, cringy. Like I get the feeling through this, that it's this like sense of like sexual discovery that these young characters Mm -hmm. are going through but also it's like it's small town boredom like they can't get out so they're trying to figure things out with each other even though that might not be the best way the best way (laughs) if you would say that (laughs) yeah and how many movies give us fascinating flawed female characters i mean this movie Mm -hmm. has at least four of them and they're all really interesting and they all get a lot of screen time in their own places and like, I think Ellen Burson's character might be my second favorite in the movie, like the alcoholic. And she's kind of seeing that her daughter, JC, might be able to get away where she didn't. She has to stay. She's like stuck in this <laughs> town. And the way she presents herself, I mean, I think without, if uh, Leachman hadn't been in the movie, I think Burson had a shot at, at winning the Oscar because it was just too competitive there. But I think she's really great, too. I completely agree. One of my favorite scenes like early in the movie is when she's having that conversation with JC in JC's bedroom. And she's like, you are too good for him. Like you're going to be bored. If you want to know a life of boredom, stay with Dwayne, marry Dwayne, but don't. And you can kind of see that she has settled into this life and she knows there's something better for her daughter. The way again, that she communicates that is like not the way you would necessarily, but it's very real. Like a good connection here. We talked about terms of endearment a couple weeks ago, and that's also another Larry McMurtry source Mm -hmm, and Mm -hmm. like very real complicated women in that story too. So I definitely, I think drew parallels between the women in this one too. Mm -hmm. We had a question from a listener asking if Larry McMurtry was underappreciated and We mentioned Terms of Endearment. He also adapted Brokeback Mountain, among many other films. How would you respond, Brian? I mean, I feel like underappreciated. I mean, he wrote Lonesome Dove, right? Which is a very famous novel, made into a miniseries, maybe more than one adaptation of that, and then Brokeback Mountain. And then we talked a little bit, like, there is a sequel to this movie that he wrote the novel of Texasville, but the sequel brings back almost the entire cast. So that's kind of intriguing to me. And it's Bogdanovich again. So I'm like, hmm. But I've heard it's not worth your time. So I don't know. <laughs> but I, I don't think he's underappreciated as a novelist, as a screenwriter. He won the Oscar for Brokeback. I agree. Like, I don't think he's underappreciated. I really love Lonesome Dove, by the way. Highly recommend mm-hmm. that book. But I think that his characters do feel like very complicated real people and sometimes I feel like that is well it's easy to connect with those people you don't always want to you want to just watch 
some cinematic thing with characters <laughs> yeah. that you, you know, don't relate to at all. And his characters, I think, and it's a perfect match for Bogdanovich. Like they get at those things maybe in yourself that you don't want to interrogate either. So maybe that's why he doesn't get as much appreciation, but I do think he's, he is appreciated. Yeah. He's a very character driven writer. He's not about the genre writing a specific kind of book. He's about the character. So maybe in that regard, he might be a little underappreciated. And then what do you think about any of the scenes, this movie, it takes us through, I think a number of really good set pieces and different scenes with these characters. Do you have a favorite or one that stands out to you when you think about this movie? One that stands out to me is when she goes to the pool at the home Mm -hmm. and I've actually been reading the novel of uh-huh. Last Picture Show. And mm-hmm. like that scene is almost exactly the same in the in the book. I just read that scene last night. And I just think, I think if there's one person in this movie who was not nominated, who I think deserved it, I think it was just too crowded of a field. I think Sybil Shepherd is amazing in this movie. And mm-hmm. I think she's especially good in that scene where she's showing her vulnerability, but she also wants to be confident and not be the only person in that room who keeps her clothes on. Mm-hmm. And the way that she takes her clothes off on that diving board, it's just the, the mix of like t- terror and sweetness. And I just, I just think it's fantastic. I think that seems a, a standout for sure. Yeah. I do think Sybil Shepard, it was a standout to me in this movie too. She of course, like off camera started dating Peter Bogdanovich right after mm-hmm. this movie. And you can tell by the way that she is shot in this movie that he <laughs> loves her. <laughs> She, I mean, she looks beautiful in this movie and she has so many intense close-ups where she's looking right into the camera where I was like, Ooh, this is like electric filmmaking here. Like she definitely, the camera loves her. She just appears in a similar way, honestly, to like Garbo. She just has like one of Mm. those faces that connects with the camera really well. And they really knew how to light her and showcase her throughout the movie. And I do love her evolution as a character as she grows up. And I do think you really do see that in the pool party scene with her vulnerability coming through. And that scene to me is just, it caught me by surprise. Definitely. (laughs) I will say when I first saw this movie, I was not expecting something like that. And I think that's due to the classic Hollywood feel that you get just from the cinematography, from the production design, from those like Greg Toland-esque deep focus shots that you don't expect all of this nudity all of a sudden at this party. You're like, oh, here we are, new Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Not something you'd see if this had been made in 51. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I think of the young actors, there aren't that many, but Sybil Shepard is definitely my favorite. I would have nominated her over Jeff Bridges. Like if this were the Gotham Awards in 2021, you know, I would, that would be my (laughs) listing. (laughs) No, I agree. I think she's stronger than Jeff Bridges is in this movie. I think Bridges is great in the movie. I don't think he does anything really extraordinary that merits necessarily an Academy Award nomination, but he's very good in it. He's so cute. I just, the whole time I was like, (laughs) oh my God. Well, and I didn't realize it was him at first until Mm -hmm. then when I realized it was him, I was like, oh my God, he looks exactly the same. Like, how is it not him? (laughs) But I agree with you. I mean, I don't think he's doing anything astounding here in this movie he does give one of those performances that i think when the academy recognizes like a new star like see one kind of coming up they'll do that Mm -hmm. from time to time and they were right about him i mean he does have a great career after this movie too so but yeah i love love sybil shepherd i think she got some attention as like a breakout nominee Mm -hmm. places but 
I am kind of surprised, I guess, that Eileen Brennan was the other one because Burston and Leachman kind of split the difference in places. Um, what do you guys think about Eileen Brennan's performance? We got a question from Matt about that. And if you think it's nomination worthy. I like her in this. I don't think it's nomination worthy. I just think her screen time is too brief, I think is the problem. I mean, when I think about all the scenes I love in this movie, I love that moment where she's like talking to the guys and she's really like showcasing her body as the waitress as Mm -hmm. is a great moment. But I don't know if she has enough to do in the movie to warrant a nomination. That would have been my argument too. There's just not enough. And with a cast that is so big like this, if you like had me really quickly list actors, she might be near the bottom and that doesn't mean she's not good. It's just, they're in there a lot more. Yeah, she would get a much juicier supporting role in Private Benjamin a few years after this, where she mm-hmm. did get nominated for supporting actress. Private Benjamin is such an interesting movie, too, just to watch. <laughs> Nick, I want you to watch that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if you didn't love Last Picture Show, maybe that one will do it for you. I do need to start following actors throughout their filmography. Maybe we do that next season. And then I think before we get into Oscar stuff, why do you guys think this movie was so revelatory to audiences when it first opened in 1971? And anything else that you think Bogdanovich was trying to say that we maybe haven't covered yet? I just think this movie was revelatory for audiences because they'd never seen anything like it. I mean, this is three years after the MPAA ratings board comes into play. And so filmmakers can now show anything they want. But I love, even when it comes to like the nudity in this movie, like Bogdanovich's restraint, and he only shows the nudity to make a point. It's never salacious. And I feel like at this at this time, we're getting some faster-moving movies like French Connection, which came out around the same time. But Last Picture Show, it, it can show an audience that you don't need to have a really fast pace to tell your story well. Like, it can just be focused on the characters and tell their story in a really interesting way. Did you guys know it was Orson Welles' idea to make it black and white? He's the one who convinced Bogdanovich. Mm-hmm. He said, you should make this in black and white. And I believe this is this is the only film I've looked at for 71 that was in black and white. I mean, by 71, it's very, very unusual to have a movie not released in color. I was surprised to read that. I mean, I know movies have been color for a while at this point, but I was like, why is it such a thing for it to be in black and white? Yeah, I believe the last year that the Academy recognized some of those technical categories in black and white, I believe it was 66, the year of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and then come Mm -hmm. 67, they got away with that, the black and white or color, like that was gone. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Nick, I think (laughs) we're used to just talking about this year for so long and how many black and white Oscar contenders we have this year, (laughs) as opposed to the 70s where they were like, we are moving away from that. Speaking of Orson Welles, again, like one of the reasons he recommended the black and white was so Bogdanovich could get more of that like Toland type of cinematography with those long shots, that deep focus. So I think it pays off and really like fits with the mood of the film. When I watch it, I'm always really struck that it's made actually in 71. It feels older. Oh, yeah. This does not feel like it was made in 71 at all. Like, even the looks of all the actors, like, it just, it feels like it was made earlier. It's very strange. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But he would make another black and white movie two years later with Paper Moon, another Oscar darling. Let's go into Oscar stuff. So do you guys think this deserved more, like, nominations or wins? Maybe save Best Picture, but otherwise, would you have given it more nominations or wins? I would have nominated this in every category. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, how many did you get? Like eight? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I mean, I, I do think Sybil Shepard was worthy of a nomination, but do we put her in supporting actress or lead actress is kind of my question. She's in a lot in the movie, you know, versus like Ellen Burstyn. She's just in a small sliver of the movie. So I feel like that might've hurt Shepard too, because she's in enough of the movie. I think you could argue lead, but she's brand new. I'm not sure if that could have happened. If she had had a few credits behind her, maybe. That's that's the one I feel like. I feel like Shepard is so great in this. I, I would have liked to have seen her recognized some, somehow for this movie. That would have been my one to, to add on. I do think she would technically be lead. Like, I'd see her there. But I do think probably, like, this movie reminds me of one of those classic, like, ensemble pictures where they just run everyone in supporting. Mm-hmm. And... So she would probably get nominated there, but yeah, I don't know. I, it's hard. I still don't think I would nominate her over Burstyn either. Definitely not Leachman, who is, I think my favorite supporting actress winner of all time. I feel like I've said that on our pod before. Yeah, definitely like top three. Yeah. But looking at the list of nominations here, I watched the movie, The Go-Between, which was deadly dull. Margaret (laughs) Leighton, no shade on Margaret. I think Sybil Shepard could have gone there. (laughs) <laughs> margaret layton i've no i have not seen the go-between good luck with it yeah <laughs> it's very very dull i feel like there is room for her for sure but imagine if we had five nominations in the supporting categories from the same movie we've talked about this with belfast this year as being a possible contender that could do this double double to men and supporting actor nominated and two women and supporting actress for the same movie and potentially having two winners from the same movie. So in supporting actor, we mentioned Jeff Bridges. What do you guys think of Ben Johnson's win against Jeff Bridges and the rest of the contenders in the category, Leonard Fry, Richard Jekyll and Roy Scheider for the French connection, which we'll talk about. Yeah. We haven't even mentioned Ben Johnson who won for, and he, and he's great in the movie. I mean, it's one of those cases where he gets that one Oscar scene where he's on the Mm -hmm. boat and he does that long monologue and there's like a long one take. And he's just like a veteran actor always did great work. And I don't believe maybe, I don't believe he got nominated before this movie. Like this was kind of his career Oscar for this movie. I feel like that's what this was. I feel like Cloris Leachman really won for her performance Whereas Ben Johnson, it was more about the career Oscar in my mind. Cause I don't think he's, you know, he, again, he doesn't do anything extraordinary in the movie. He's got that great monologue on the boat, but I don't know. I don't know if he necessarily was deserving to win for this. Again, I don't think he's in the movie quite enough. He he's gone halfway through <laughs> in the movie. Right. <laughs> well, I think that type of role fits too, where he's this older character, he dies. And that's also kind of something to award. It's interesting Mm. that we've talked about Network and Beatrice Strait's win, and this is the counterpart to the shortest supporting performance in Academy history, apart from her. Right. It's under 10 minutes. Yeah. It's the the shortest performance that has won Best Supporting Actor in history. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Until Bradley (laughs) Cooper wins this year. (laughs) Oh, no. Beatrice Strait, though, man, that is one hell of a scene in Network. I mean, you Mm -hmm. can't deny her that one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a Piper Laurie girl, so I would pick her there, but I'm not going to. I get the Beatrice Strait win. (laughs) I do think that's a great, great scene. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you both about Ben Johnson. Like he has, I think when I saw the monologue that he gives, like on the boat, I was like, there it is. That is why he won right here. Like it's this Oscar scene plus his career. 
Yeah, my choice would actually be Richard Jekyll and Sometimes a Great Notion, which we talked about recently. It's basically kind of like Beatrice Strait for one scene. There's a scene where he's slowly drowning, but halfway through the movie, uh, with and his brother, played by Paul Newman, is there trying to save him, and he can't save him. It is one of the best scenes I've ever seen in a movie. It's like five minutes mm-hmm. of just harrowing tension. And what Richard Jekyll does in that moment, it always feels very authentic. And it, like he's in such a panic, he starts laughing. And it's just, it's an incredible piece of film acting. I would probably give it to him. Wow, I need to watch that. I saw that you just did an episode on that too. And I (laughs) didn't know about this movie, but the fact that it's a Paul Newman movie too, I am very eager to watch now. Yeah, Newman directed it. It's not a great movie, but it's got that scene in the middle. That's just yeah. the one that's scene. Cool. The one scene. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, just find the scene on YouTube and you're good. <laughs> so another question from Matt. How is this not the best picture winner? Are you devastated, Brian? No, because the French connection is great. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the French connection is just a little bit more immediate, more exciting, more fresh. Last picture shows about nostalgia and it's black and white, and this is 1971. We've moved away from some... So I kind of see why they went with the French Connection. But I would... Yeah, I would have gone with Last Picture. <laughs> I noticed on Twitter, too. So we asked everyone to rank the Best Picture nominees from this year. And it was almost unanimous that the Last Picture Show should win Best Picture, okay. which I thought was really interesting because I feel like this movie is kind of underseen. Um, Mm -hmm. just because, you know, it's not a winner. And I feel like sometimes when people do go back to like 70s cinema or different decades, like they start with the best picture winners. It's an easy way to like start watching these movies. And Mm -hmm. this one, it isn't as easy of a sell as some of the other ones from this decade. We have paranoia thrillers. We have these really taut dramas. And Mm -hmm. I think Peter Bogdanovich, while he is a big name in New Hollywood, he's not necessarily, I think, the first person that people look at from this decade so I was surprised but it's also exciting I feel like there was a strong consensus around this and I personally expected it to be around Kubrick because I know that people go crazy for everything Kubrick but a clockwork orange not so much yeah we just recorded that episode and that it was crazy to see all the hate for that movie at the time even though it did manage a best picture nomination a clockwork orange was not loved by everybody at the time like when they announced i believe when they announced the nominees for best picture there's like no clapping for when they say clock <laughs> it's just silent <laughs> they're like this one really people didn't want fiddler on the roof to win <gasps> what a lot of people had boycotted the ceremony like barbara streisand didn't go mm. apart from any others because it was a nominee getting back to last picture show <laughs> i think also why it didn't win same thing you guys are saying french connection just said a greater mass appeal. It was more Mm -hmm. enticing, more thrilling. Looking at the top 10 of the box office, Last Picture Show was there at number nine and French Connection was at four. I mean, we'll probably get here, but I would have voted for the French Connection. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Not Clockwork (laughs) Orange. (laughs) Not to venture here. We don't want to Even that is a hard sell. I love Kubrick, but I understand why people hated this and... It's honestly a little surprising it got into Best Picture because it is that jarring. Yeah, it made sense that Clockwork Orange would have been like the director nomination for Kubrick, the right. same way like a movie like Being John Malkovich gets director for Spike Jones but doesn't get into picture. So that was kind of surprising to me that Clockwork Orange managed picture in a very strong year. Great movie. And then how do you guys think that today's Academy would receive The Last Picture Show? Do you think they would respond to it in this way? Do you think it would get more, less? What do you think? 
I think I think they would respond to it well today. I mean, I'd be curious to see if they were to make it now with a different cast. I mean, it would it would depend on how it turned out. But I think you know, if it came out to be about as good as this, I think the Academy would respond to it. I haven't seen Belfast yet, but I'm getting a little bit of a Last Picture Show vibe. Belfast is really sweet and earnest okay. and saccharine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have like the grit that oh, okay. this movie does. I would say, but black and white. Historical, nostalgia, right? Yeah, historical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. that is definitely a connector. So I think they would recognize today. I think audiences too would recognize that there's something special about Last Picture Show and the story and those characters. I would hope it would not just get lost in the all the end of the year movies. I don't know. I would say it wouldn't hit eight, but it would still get pretty recognized. I think acting is there, cinematography, if not picture and director. So I would say like six or seven, which I think is still really good for movies nowadays yeah maybe it would miss out on picture today but i think a few acting nominations would happen for sure i think that this would be like the film twitter movie of the year Mm. one of them i think that it would also be a big hit with critics they would really latch onto it and then i think it would get that push to be into the oscar conversation so i feel like Mm -hmm. i can see it doing just as well today especially if you consider if we had a film that was really well made like a very technically beautiful film, well-crafted, that had a focus kind of on movies, right? Like that's the the center of it, like at its core, but kind of showed a break from this old era into a new one. I think the Academy would respond well to that, but especially critics. I also feel like this would probably win SAG Ensemble. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. It's a great would point. have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Best picture. <laughs> you can do picture. You're our guest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I best cinematography. I can't believe it didn't win that. That's crazy. I would do best supporting actress for Cloris Leachman. Love her performance. Love her win. I think it's like the signature moment of her career. And if not, like if it is her comic performances, this should be like everyone should watch this acting masterclass. Agreed. <laughs> I agree. I would also give it to Cloris Leachman. Okay, let's move on to my selection, Clute. I love this movie so much. I'm very excited to talk about it. Description here, this acclaimed thriller stars Jane Fonda as Brie Daniel, a New York City call girl who becomes enmeshed in an investigation into the disappearance of a business executive. Detective John Clute, played by Donald Sutherland, is hired to follow Daniel and eventually begins a romance with her, but it appears that he hasn't been the only person on her trail. When it becomes clear that Daniels is being targeted, it's up to her and Clute to figure out who is after her before it's too late. This was directed by Alan J. Pakula and written by Andy and David E. Lewis. It stars Jane Fonda, Donald Sutherland, Roy Scheider, and Charles Siafi. Awards and Oscars here. The New York Film Critics Circle gave Best Actress to Jane Fonda. Golden Globes, Jane Fonda also won Actress Drama there, and it was nominated for Screenplay. It was nominated for WGA, and at the Oscars, Jane Fonda won Best Actress, and it was nominated for Adapted Screenplay. So I think, Brian, let's start with you. When did you first see Clute, and what do you think of this movie? I first saw Clute in college. I took a women in film class. I was the only man in a room of about 30 women. It was really interesting. <laughs> so the professor would always ask my opinion. And maybe the best film we watched. We, lo- we watched a lot of great stuff, some of which I hadn't seen. I had never seen Clute before. I don't know how I missed it. In high school, I was watching all like the Oscar winners and stuff. I don't know how I missed this one. But seeing it on the big screen, like on a print, it was really 
fascinating. And I think it's, it may be my favorite Jane Fonda film performance. It's just such an interesting look at this, at a character who could have been played much more salacious, much more like, like she just really cuts into the, like the inner workings of this character all throughout the movie. You really feel for her. And it, considering like the, the the film performances she she had done in the sixties, things like Barbarella and some of these you know campier mm-hmm. movies, just where she went from from what three years she goes to this movie, and I just think she's devastating in this. She's just so real and authentic. I love these kind of character driven, sort of genre ish thrillers mm-hmm. of the seventies. Alan J. Pakula is very known for that. This might be the best one. If if not this, it'd be All the President's Men, which I love too. But yeah, mm-hmm. Clute's just amazing. I love this movie. Great. Nick, what, do you, what about you? I'm always worried when you have to watch a 70s movie, like what you will think of For it. For the first time. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's airport, he'll love it. Oh my God. <laughs> Throwback. Never forget. I loved Clute, especially Jane Fonda's performance. I think these murder mystery thrillers, it's not really a murder mystery, but it has those elements. Like you said, genre, movie those are always so fascinating to me. And even this being made in the seventies felt like it was being made in this really unique way. And Jane just adds so much of an unexpected quality. She's an actress, she's a sex worker, but she's trying to get out of doing that. She only does it like part-time to make money. She wants to live on Park Avenue again. So this character is so multifaceted and layered. And then like when she plays Clute's character, into having sex with her and she's like oh you're just another john i my jaw was on the floor (laughs) like oh jane like she gave it to us and i was thrilled because then from that point on you don't know when she's acting or Mm -hmm. you know what's gonna happen she's with her therapist and she's you know venting but i yeah this was amazing oh i'm so glad that you liked it I picked this one because I think like this is what I think of when I think of like 70s films that I really love. I love Alan J. Pakula. I love The Prince of Darkness, Gordon Willis, who shot this movie. I think this is so well shot. It's just gorgeous. The shadows and the way that Mm. Jane Fonda as Brie moves in and out of them. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film that's so well made, really well written. I also think, you know, Jane Fonda is one of my favorite living people who I've never met. So getting to see her in her best actress winning role here, I think she does so much. And I think that if you watch interviews or read interviews with Jane Fonda, she's talking about Clute. This comes at a really unique point in her career because she's starting to find her voice as an activist. I think a lot of people, in addition to knowing her as an actress, they know her as an activist. And She had a lot of trouble at the beginning of this movie. She just didn't know if this was something she should take on as a feminist. She was learning like what feminism meant to her. And so she consulted a lot of people. She ended up working with a lot of like real life call girls and madams to like learn more about this world and really dig into the character. And she discovered she has this quote in an interview where she said that you know like learning about and showing a full person that is feminism and that was how she kind of found herself here in that part but I also think she and Pakula had a great partnership on set I think that he trusted her and that was a big deal because in those scenes when she's in therapy a lot of those are improvised like she Mm. brought her own experiences and what she thought this character would do 
um, to those scenes. And I think those are some of my favorite scenes, actually, which is surprising. You'd think it'd be something more thrilling, but I really love getting to know her character in those parts. But the scene you mentioned, Nick, when she's wearing the pajamas and the trench coat instead of her caftan and she tricks him, love it. You learn so much about her character and how manipulative she can be, but why she's that way. And I, I love that. So I'm very excited to talk more about this movie. You know, we're talking about Jane Fonda as the centerpiece for this movie, which she is, but I think it's more than just a movie featuring this actress. Like it's a good movie. And those scenes when either the camera is distant as if you're this person stalking them, I felt so anxious inside. And I think being able to convey that feeling to audiences is really superb too. So there's, there's a lot going on more than just like, oh, let's watch Jane Fonda. For sure. Um, Brian, so this movie, you mentioned All the President's Men. Um, mm-hmm. It's part of Pakula's like, unofficial paranoia trilogy, <laughs> which also includes All the President's Men and The Parallax View. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite of the three? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty close. I mean, if I had to pick one to take to a desert island, probably All the President's Men, just mm-hmm. by a little. I just think that is just a tremendously entertaining movie. Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman. That that like that's a thrill ride of a movie. Like you could show younger people who might mm-hmm. not be interested in film history and films of the seventies. I think younger people could really respond to all the president's men and another great like ensemble cast. Whereas Clute's a little bit more specific, it's more about just a couple of ma- you know major characters, and it's a different has a different feel to it. I feel I feel like Clute's more of like a specifically character driven more drama. Whereas All the President's Men is like more of an ensemble thriller and just really exciting all the way through. But I think they're both great. A Parallax View I've only seen like one time with Warren Beatty. It's hard because I really love All the President's Men. I think that the screenplay of All the President's Men kind of sets that one a little bit above Clute for me. Mm-hmm. Um, written by legendary William Goldman. Like that script is just so snappy. You get so much character development in there. And I think just it plays really well as a thriller with that ensemble when I first watched Clute when I was in college because I've loved Jane Fonda really forever I expected it to be much more of a thriller and not as much of a character study but I will say back then when I watched it I still I was wondering why it was called Clute and not like Brie or something like that (laughs) because to me it always feels much more about her but I I do understand I think like it is like how she is connected to this man and how his story kind of comes in. But it is interesting how the men in this movie are used because it is minimal. Like we don't learn a lot about them, I think, in comparison to what we learn about her. Mm-hmm. But what do you think of Sutherland in this movie? He's one of my favorites ever. Donald Sutherland, I think, maybe our best living actor who never got a competitive Oscar nomination, like Clute and Ordinary People. I'm like, how did he not <laughs> get, yeah. ever get a nomination? Yeah, I think she is so strikingly great in this that you kind of, weeks on, kind of forget the Donald Sutherland performance. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because he's subtle and he's not yeah. overplaying it. He's kind of letting her steal the show. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think he's great in this. I really love his, when you look at some of the roles he was playing around this time, a little bit more eccentric supporting roles. And this one, he's just kind of the straight man and, I think he does a good job with what he's asked to do. This is kind of the King Richard discussion of the name. I had thought about that as I was watching it too. And he's not boring by any means. That's not the right word, but he is there to support 
Bree Daniel and he's a little droll. You know, he is being a detective. He has to be pretty omniscient or removed from what's going on. Yes, he gets sucked into her being and I like how these characters connect because at first she's very standoffish. She won't let him in. And there's a turning point when he protects her. And I did like how those boundaries got muddled very quickly. And I just like how she takes charge of him, really. <laughs> the movie, it's not something that you see a lot in film. It's literally his name is the title and he's secondary to her, which I think is really interesting. I agree. Like, I feel like he is good in this movie. I think they have great chemistry too, the two of them. And like, I really believed like what was going on between them, the whole movie. And I think that the way that it is set up to kind of be like about kind of her evolution as this character, I think we do need kind of a a foil to her or someone like very different, right? Like even just their apartments, like I love her apartment in this, even though it's supposed to be like kind of dingy and above a funeral home. I think you learn just so much about her character. She's reading this big book about sun signs as she's going to bed and she's sitting at this table with these like candles lit. She's like lighting a joint in her caftan. I loved that. I love that about her character. And with him, like even when he's like following her and has this little tiny apartment room kind of basement thing where he's hanging out it's so drab and there's just nothing there besides like her mugshot and some notes like hanging up on the wall. It's like in that little sad bed. (laughs) It's like, that is, I love how this movie I think too uses like costumes and production design and spaces to tell you so much about these characters. Like she is all personality and control and he's just kind of along for the ride. And I think that at the beginning of the movie, he definitely sees himself as a character in control or used to having control. Well, it's one of two New York movies we'll be talking about Mm. from this year. And I think spaces is always a conversation in New York. We have it in the humans from this year. Yeah. It's a big part of shaft too, which came out in the summer of 71. We talked about that a lot. The location filming of shaft. It's so (laughs) integral to the success of that movie too. Mm. New York. I think that this, at this time period too, they were so, it seems like just focused on showing this gritty underbelly of New York City, Mm -hmm. like not the glamorous Park Avenue, New York City, or like something you would get in a musical per se, Mm -hmm. the sixties. Like it's very much, they're using that setting to tell stories they wouldn't have been able to in earlier decades. Yeah. The car chase in French Connection had been shot on a back lot it wouldn't have the same power mm-hmm. definitely not <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh steven spielberg he shot his first the- theatrical well his first feature film duel also in 71 we just talked about that was a film that everybody wanted him to film that on a soundstage and spielberg mm-hmm. refused he said i'm not filming this on a soundstage it mm-hmm. looks stupid and so he shot it outdoors and you can tell just like in french connection you can tell they're really doing it on that street and it brings so much power to every scene i think it just it's just night and day definitely i think we all really love jane fonda in this movie and what she brings to the character but i thought it was so interesting that jane fonda like when she wasn't confident in the role yet she asked pakula to replace her with faye dunaway who she was friends with at the time because like faye had had a challenging upbringing and she thought she would be a better fit for the role and Barbara Streisand apparently also turned down this role. Do you guys think, e- 
right? Would either of those have worked instead of Fonda? I think Faye Dunaway would have been good. I don't think she would have been as good as Fonda. I think Faye Dunaway is one of my favorite actresses of the 70s, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like Chinatown and then leading up to Network, which I just think she's amazing in that. I think she could have done well in Clute. I just don't think she would have had the same shades as the Fonda performance. It would have been Mm -hmm. a different movie. I don't think Streisand would have been great in them. You know, she can be really good as an actress in some things. Mm -hmm. I just don't think she would have fit this Mm -hmm. role well. I definitely agree. I think Faye, though, she seems almost too powerful. And with Fonda, you get some of that balance between softness and harshness. Mm. Or she's able to mask it really well and, I guess, confuse the audience or make them think otherwise. So that's what I really like about her. I agree with you guys. Like Streisand, I cannot see her in this role Dunaway like I love 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 her and especially in network but I do feel like Fonda is able to kind of disarm the audience in a way that like Dunaway she seems like this femme fatale character like we can see that through the other roles that she's taken and like in the one of the opening shots of Fonda we see her with all these other models and we just have these like casting directors who are critiquing all these features of these women and there's just this look of boredom that falls over Jane Fonda's face and it's just perfect for that character like you know she's been through something but there is Mm -hmm. this blankness to her and I feel like with Dunaway she's so striking and there's just so much there that I think you would know from the beginning like she's gonna trick Donald Sutherland that's gonna happen at some point in this movie whereas Fonda it really does catch you off guard yeah that's a great point so we talked, I mentioned a little bit about Gordon Willis shooting this movie. What did you guys think of the cinematography here? I'm going to say step on our Oscar conversation a little bit. He definitely should have been nominated for this movie. I can't believe he wasn't. But what did you guys think of his work here as the DP? Yeah, I think one of you said earlier, like, like the shadows of this movie are really mm-hmm. striking. Not every shot is lit, like super bright. Like there's moments like when she's like in the apartment and they're talking and you don't really see all of the frame some of it's in shadow and that's like a quality you see in a lot of great 70s movies that I think we don't see as much now I feel like today we just see everything lit and I I like that he allows us to use our imagination at times to to, to make out what else is in the frame yeah I really like it I had mentioned the POV shots and I think using the space well he also has some like bird's eye shots in the apartment from above, like from the rooftop. I think those are just as eerie as the ones like when we are closer up um, getting their reactions. Or I love when Donald Sutherland knows they're being watched and he like directs Brie in a way that is like, you need to do what I'm telling you you need to do. And navigating between spaces, like in the final sequence when they're in that factory you get some really cool shots between the clothes and from afar as we're being stalked. Yeah. I love how the ending looks too. Like we have all those like mannequins and everything Mm -hmm. and the way that he is choosing to position the camera and lighting obviously is a huge deal here. And it took forever every day to light the set before they could come on and um, perform. So I thought that was really unique and something you would expect from Gordon Willis and 
why I think he deserved a nomination. I love the way that Jane Fonda is lit here. Um, her costumes by Ann Roth, who won last year for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So been around for a while. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. But that like beautiful sparkly dress she wears with the fur and even her pajamas. Like I just, I love how the camera captures Fonda. I think Gordon Willis in a similar way that Bogdanovich felt about <laughs> Sybil Shepherd. I feel like, Gordon Willis knew how to capture Jane Fonda's beauty for sure. Yeah, I think this is the most beautiful Fonda has ever looked on film. Mm -hmm. And it's wild that her character is being seen as this like kind of ugly person. Like in the first scene, they're like, you have weird hands. And so they move on to the next girl. It's like, I don't know what you're looking at. Yeah. It's like, are you sure about that? Like, please. So I think going into Oscar stuff, we have a question from the Out of Oscar podcast. Would be curious to hear where Jane Fonda's clute ranks in the best actress winners that you've seen. First, do either of you guys have best actress rankings? I don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I'd have to think about it. I could probably say top 10. I mean, I don't even know if I have a favorite. favorite. Like, Faye, Faye Dunaway and Network would be in my top five, for sure. Like, mm -hmm. that is just a great performance. Yeah. I think. What's yours? I'm sure you have a listing, <laughs> Sophia. Me? Oh. Uh -huh. I do have a listing. So Faye Dunaway and Network is my favorite from the decade, but Jane Fonda's okay. next for sure. Both of them, I would say, are in like top 10 to 15 on my list. So pretty high up there. Um, but I do, I love like the 40s and 50s. So a lot of those spots are taken up <laughs> by actresses <laughs> from then. But I love Fonda's performance here. I feel like this is just such a wonderful role for her. It's, it's like everything that she, every, everything that she is as a person and as an actress, like she really found herself in this role, I think. And, you know, we can talk about actors all day long who like do method acting and who lose themselves in the role. And like Lady Gaga talking about House of Gucci, how she did this <laughs> accent for nine months <laughs> and became Patrizia. But I feel like Jane Fonda really became Brie and they, like when I think of Jane Fonda, I think of her performance as Brie Daniels as like her main performance to me. And I think it is her best one that we have. Yeah, I think when we think of Jane Fonda's Oscar win, we always think of Clute not coming home, the right. other one. Like I feel like coming home, you have to think about it a little bit longer. <laughs> You're like, mm -hmm. oh, right. She won another one later in the decade. Mm -hmm. But the one we remember is Clute. Definitely. So do you think, do either of you think that this deserved more nominations or wins? I mean, it's hard because, as I said before, there's a lot of great films in 1971, so there's only five <laughs> slots. I mean, I think Pakula might have been worthy of a director nomination. I don't know. Picture? I didn't like Fiddler on the Roof, so I would happily put Clute <laughs> in that slot. And I haven't seen Nicholas yet, so we'll see. But yeah, I think it was deserving of more. I think when we think of the year in film of 1971, 50 years on, I think Clute is at the top of those conversations, for sure. So... I think it deserved a few more nominations. Um, I think I would definitely give Pakula a director nomination. I would give this a picture nomination. I would replace Nicholas and Alexandra. I would give it a cinematography nomination, a costume design nomination, and I would do score. Mm. I really love the score here. I forgot about, like, weirdly, it wasn't something that, I remembered from this movie as being something that really stood out. But on this rewatch, I was really impressed by how eerie that score is. It feels almost ethereal mm -hmm. at times, but just so creepy. Fits really well with the mood of the film. 
I was almost going to say score. Definitely picture director. I also haven't seen some of the others, but this was 14th on the box office charts. So lower than all the others. It feels kind of like an independent movie if it were to be made today. So I Mm -hmm. understand why it didn't get in. Like smaller movie, harder to get in, especially at these times in the 70s. And then that's like a perfect segue into how would today's Academy receive this movie? Oh, I think you'd have to really screw it up in that lead role of Brie to not get at least nominated today, right? Like, I feel like any talented actress today were to take on a juicy role like that. I think they would be a shoe in for a nomination at least. I would say about the same actress and screenplay. That's a weird combination Mm. for two nominations, but sadly, it's probably about what would happen today. I agree. Like this feels very much like a best actress only movie to me Mm -hmm. today. Like it's one of those that would get, I think a lot of critical support. It would be an indie favorite. I feel like a 24 would want it (laughs) and it would just be like this best actress push and she would be the one to make it through. But I really can't see anyone other than Jane Fonda in the part. I do feel like it's harder today. If the movie were to only get a best actress nomination I feel like it's harder today to win. Like there was Julianne Moore for Still Alice. It happens. But mm-hmm. I feel like if the movie itself isn't getting a lot of nominations outside of the performance, it might be trickier to win today. I do like Fonda's comment she made to reporters at one point. She goes, I don't care about the Oscar. I make movies to support my activist causes. Certainly not for any honors. I love her so much. <laughs> like she hasn't changed. She was arrested during Black Lives Matter and like, The fact that she was doing this 50 years ago is phenomenal. I just love that her first film came out in 1960, Tall Story. And she still, she just wrapped the new season of Grace and Frankie. So more than 60 years. That's so, that's crazy. That's really Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. She's had such a long career. I love her so much. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Should we borrow this answer from being Jane Fonda? (laughs) No, I think, I mean, I think for me, that's the only answer. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I bombed this the last time about Last Picture Show. I thought you were asking like outside of what it already won, like to, oh. to name, though, so, uh, like for Picture Show, of course, I would have gone with Cloris Leachman. I thought you were asking like mm. for, for the nominations it didn't win for. So I think I would say Leachman there and I would say it'd have to be Fonda for this. I don't know what else, like what's better than Fonda in this to win yeah. the Oscar. I think it has to be Fonda. She is the movie. The movie is her. <laughs> okay, Nick. Okay, on to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yay. Ready for Yay. a fun scrum? One of my ten favorite time. films. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> so, description here: A sweet boy from a poor family dreams of finding one of the five golden tickets hidden inside chocolate bar wrappers, which will admit him to the eccentric and reclusive Willy Wonka's magical factory. One after another, tickets are discovered by ghastly children. But will the lad find the last remaining one and have all of his dreams come true? It's directed by Mel Stewart and written by Roald Dahl. It stars Gene Wilder, Jack Albertson, Peter Ostrom, Julie Don Cole, and more. In terms of awards and Oscars, there aren't many here (laughs) at the Golden Globes. Gene Wilder was nominated for Best Actor in a Comedy Musical, and at the Oscars, it was nominated in Best Scoring, Adaptation, and Original Song Score. Very confusing category, but a bizarre one, like I said earlier. 
of all of the things in this movie, this imaginative, greatly acted by Gene Wilder story adaptation, you know, could have gotten maybe a screenplay, but Brian, you love this movie. When did you first see it? Why do you love it so much? This was one of the earliest movies I watched. And when you're a kid, you see a lot of Disney stuff, a lot of safe content. And Willy Wonka, I feel like for a lot of kids, it's the first movie that's a little bit more dangerous. And you're like, oh, there's some weird stuff going on here. It's not just like a safe, like everyone's happy, smiley movie for kids. Like there's a lot of interesting developments in this movie. And I've just always loved it ever since. I think Gene Wilder's performance is one for the ages. The songs are great. The movie moves really quickly, really well. It's about, what, 100 minutes long. doesn't overstay its welcome. And there's just so much great imagination throughout. A perfect ensemble cast. So many cool special effects. And, like, so many chances that Mel Stewart took, you know, directing it, editing the film. I just, for me, it's, I mean, it's a near-perfect movie. I just think it's great. It's so much fun. (laughs) Sophia? Yeah. So, when I was little... My dad would take my sister and me to Blockbuster, and this was 100% our most rented movie. (laughs) We were obsessed with it and would watch it all the time. Like, it was definitely, I think, what you were saying, Brian, about like Disney movies and like kids, you know, wanting something like more dangerous, like a little bit scarier. Mm -hmm. That I think is what this movie has is that it has amazing scenes and this wonderful imagination to it that works for kids but it also feels like you're watching a movie that works for adults and kids like that deep down I think when I saw the tunnel scene for the first time I was traumatized by it but still wanted to watch it again and would still like love this movie and I think so much of it is also the music I think it definitely like leans on the like music that came before in the 60s where we had a lot of those musicals these songs are so catchy and we have really good musical numbers in the movie but also it's like even if you can't relate to charlie bucket directly like you're rooting for him and i think like having someone to root for um that's another kid against these horrible children is just something that's really fun and i think a lot of my favorite movies actually from the time were Roald Dahl adaptations. I also love Matilda and the Mm. Nicholas Rogue version of The Witches. So good. Those were all my favorites. (laughs) So I feel like this one really fits in nicely. And Mm -hmm. I was also obsessed with Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka. Absolutely loved him in this. Yeah. Mel Stewart said in an interview, he made this movie for adults, not kids. And I think that's a big reason why it works as well as it does. I 100% agree. I think at least us, we watched it as kids. I definitely didn't see the more mature elements at the time. Like, yes, the tunnel scene is really scary, but the Oompa Loompas are, you know, these cute creatures that are singing and pouring sugar into the river or whatever. But you learn that, like, there are problematic images that go along with that and people almost boycotted the movie and there were lots of things going on and they changed the title. I think this movie's smarter than it lets off as you know there's there's oscar wilde in here there's shakespeare where is fancy bread in the heart or in the head you know i love these lines and i think adapting it from a kid's book it's funny there was only one line that they took from the book and used in song Mm. so there's a lot of adaptation going on they changed the ending and certain parts i'm sure but i think that's why it works really well Yeah, I love its structure, too. I love how at the beginning, I feel like we really get to know 
the lore of the Wonka factory and why it's this mysterious thing that's there. And, you know, all kids, like most kids love candy and love chocolate. So it's just an, a thing right away that you can latch onto and get interested in as a child, but there is this mysterious element to it. But then in addition to getting to know that and getting to know Charlie, we get to know the bucket family and these grandparents who are all just (laughs) sleeping in the same bed in this way. And that to me, I remember as a kid, just thinking that was so odd. I don't know how to describe that other than that. And I just, the relationship that Charlie has with grandpa Joe, I feel like grandpa Joe now is this like meme on Twitter and places where it's like grandpa Joe is really the villain of this story. He didn't get out of bed until Charlie was able to take him to the chocolate factory. But I always really loved grandpa Joe's relationship with Charlie. And especially as a kid, I thought it was really sweet that he had this relationship with his grandpa in that way. Yeah. I saw that meme too. of Like he's the villain. It it was a video I watched. It was like 20 minutes long and it it broke it down like scene by scene, like the 37 reasons why. And I kind of agreed with most of them, but yeah, I had this really special relationship with my grandfather who who looked like Jack Albertson. And so I'm okay with uh, grandpa Joe sitting in bed for 20 plus years or however long it is. And then as soon as the golden ticket, he's up on his feet, he's dancing around the room. I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous, but I go with it. I will say that bed is scarier to me than the tunnel scene. It's Mm. horrifying. It's just imagine. (laughs) When I watched it this time, I was like, that is so gross. Like, oh my God. Just don't think about it. We can't. Yeah, you mentioned something real quick about the mystery of Willy Wonka. Something I think works so well in the movie is that we're not introduced to Gene Wilder in the first scene, there's not a prologue. We don't see him in the factory dealing with his workers. I like that it takes, what, at least 25 minutes, maybe longer mm-hmm. until we see him. Like that element of mystery in the first third of the movie, I think works really well. Yeah, we are meeting Willy Wonka when the kids are meeting Willy Wonka. Exactly. So it feels like you're getting to go into the factory with them. And it's just this great mystery to you. And a fun fact that I learned about this movie a long time ago that's always stayed with me was that when Gene Wilder read the script, and you guys probably know this, Gene Wilder said he would only take the role of Willy Wonka if he was allowed to limp and then somersault when he first meets mm-hmm. the kids. And I always loved that when I was a kid that he did that. And when Mel Stewart asked why, he said that Wonka doing this would mean that like no one would know from that moment on if he was lying or telling the truth. So I feel like that's like the perfect way to meet the character. And I love that bit of humor that he brings right away, but really throughout the movie. Yeah, he brings a sense of menace to the part where you're never quite sure is, are these other kids actually being killed? (laughs) (laughs) Is it kind of fake? And they're just pushing them outside. Oh, they're fine. And Mm -hmm. like, every time I watch it, you get the sense that maybe this is scarier than we even realize. (laughs) Like, it could be really bad. I don't know. Yeah, he has this like deadpan delivery at times that I really love. And I feel like that's just my sense of humor too. watching these movies. And he's like, stop, no, don't. (laughs) Or when he'll just like very blankly say to the parents like, oh, yeah, that goes to the furnace. (laughs) (laughs) No worry in his voice. (laughs) We have to juice her before she explodes. (laughs) 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 Okay, great. (laughs) And you're not sure, is he being truthful? Is she, do they actually have to juice her? Like, it just right. adds this other element to the movie that keeps you coming back and back, I think. It's so great. 
And I love how we meet all of the kids, like as they find the golden ticket or right afterwards, because you learn everything about these characters, like Veruca Salt having all of these workers in her dad's factory, just shelling all these candy bars for her and Violet being more concerned with her piece of gum and her record. Like, you know exactly who these kids are and who Mm -hmm. gets to get these golden tickets. And it makes it feel like so unfair, like throughout. And then when Charlie finally does get the golden ticket, you feel like even more elated because, you know, at least one good child is going to be there. I mean, we have, yeah, we haven't even talked about Baruch Assault until now. I mean, that is just an iconic character, an amazing performance. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had the thrill of a lifetime on my podcast. I got to talk to the actress, Julian Don Cole, who's in her 60s now. Oh my gosh. We talked for an hour and it was, it was amazing. It was the most surreal hour I've spent in a long time <laughs> to talk to the real li- wow. you know, the living, breathing Baruch Assault. She even turned into Baruch at the end of our talk, which was really, that, that was something else. But, <laughs> I think her performance in this movie is dazzling. I think her song, her closing song is so Mm -hmm. much fun. It's like one of the only times any of the kids are singing in the whole movie. And she really just blows it out of the water. She's amazing in that last scene. Well, it's so interesting that she is the only one of the children that went on to have an acting career. Mm -hmm. For many decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Charlie, played by Peter, he had a contract he could have signed on to this Mm -hmm. contract to work in many movies and he became a veterinarian instead i love i i I kind of love it Mm -hmm. when an actor does one movie and it's like one of the great movies of all time and that's it Uh you don't get to see them grow up on film that's it one and done Mm -hmm. (laughs) the guy who played danny in the shining was the same way like just did that that's it (laughs) i love though i read that peter ostrom when gene wilder died in 2016 he changed his like social media to say former child actor veterinarian inherited a chocolate factory on august 29th 2016 i didn't know that i love that that's cool (laughs) and i think since you mentioned this brian which child was the worst because for me it was veruca salt oh yeah yeah i mean i think the other three that we haven't really talked about have their flaws (laughs) But I think Veruca Salt is clearly like the one that is just the worst of the worst in the greatest way possible. (laughs) Yeah. I completely agree. I feel like the other ones, it's just like, okay, like Augustus, he doesn't really say much. His whole thing is just like gluttony. Like he just wants to eat all the candy and drink from the chocolate river. His poor mom. Oh my God. The whole, (laughs) that whole thing. And then, I mean, Mike TV, I obviously relate to as someone who watches hundreds of movies and a lot of TV every year. (laughs) And same with Violet. I mean, she just has like a strange hobby, it seems, an addiction. But Veruca is just a little devil, really. Like that's a child you do not want to deal with. And that's in part like, yes, it's the writing, but it's Julie Don Cole's performance. Like she is, to me, besides Gene Wilder, the standout actor Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. movie because... Her song is great. Like, it's iconic. The don't care how, I want it now, amazing. I think she's villainous. Yeah. And her first scene, like, you just know who she is. I mean, when Mm -hmm. when the dad says, for days, they've been working from dawn until dusk, and she just shouts, make them work nights. (laughs) You know who that character is. It's so true. And in that scene, the mom shows up at the very end. I'm like, I had no idea she was here the whole time. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like, do something. Someone stop her. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 
So I think once we get into the chocolate factory, like, do you guys have a favorite scene once we're inside a favorite demise of a child <laughs> that you like? <laughs> I love the reveal of the chocolate room, which I guess the shot they use in the movie is the first time those kids and everybody there like saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. So you wow. really see the surprise in their eyes and mm-hmm. I just, I love the look of that room, the production design, and then the song that Gene Wilder sings. Like that, to me, is like the centerpiece of the movie. I mean, yes, there's the scene of them on the boat, and there's all these great parts later, but I feel like the reveal of the chocolate room, that really seals the deal for me in this movie. I just love it. I mean, it has to be the huge chocolate room. Pure imagination. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's this blissful song. You're parading around a room, eating anything and everything that you see. Apparently, the Chocolate River itself was disgusting and smelled, mm-hmm. and it took forever for them to get that consistency and color. So, like, I won't drink that. But, like, the mar- the the mushroom, to me, was always fascinating. Mm-hmm. The leaves being edible. I also read that the flower that Gene Wilder is eating is actually wax, and he would, like, spit it out after mm-hmm. every take. I mean, you always want to just jump in the screen and eat something whenever this comes on screen. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I agree. Like that opening chocolate room scene, it has the same effect on you as it does like on those kids when you're watching it. Because I love how this movie reveals everything to us in the same way that it does to the kids. And I remember being a kid watching that, just having that same sense of wonder as they did. I think my favorite thing that happened to a kid really was the good egg, bad egg thing. I always was like really entranced by the golden geese that and Veruca and her just like pulling down that trap. I just feel like she really deserved it. I remember when I was little, so I was very happy about that. But yeah, I would say those two. And then which candy would you want to try? Oh, the Scrum Dilly Umptious bar sounds pretty good. That first one at the beginning, like a very long chocolate bar, but that's mm-hmm. really yummy. I mean, some of the candy they test in the, like inside the chocolate factory, I'm like, I don't know if I'd like that. <laughs> like, like the gum that, that it has like a full course meal. Mm-hmm. Like, no, thanks. I'm good. Yeah. Oh, that I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, uh, it sounds weird. It's just, it sounds kind of artificial. Just yeah, you get like a full gum. meal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what mine would be. I think one of the big gummy bears that are in the chocolate room would love that. Also in the opening credits, they show a lot of really Mm. great looking chocolate. There's like a chocolate ribbon thing that they show. Would love that. I think like of the fun candies that they show us. I mean, I would love to try an everlasting gobstopper. Like that's the Mm. iconic candy. So I would love to see what that was like. Not the wallpaper. The wallpaper is the most vile to me. Like (laughs) licking wallpaper. No, (laughs) no, thank you. Tastes like (laughs) snozberry. And we also got a question from the futurist. If as a child, you each took a tour of the chocolate factory, which Wonka would you want to escort you? Gene Wilder, Johnny Depp, or Timothy Chalamet from the new Wonka? Well, today, I'd probably pick Chalamet because he's a handsome guy. <laughs> I, think back, I think back when I was a kid, I think I would, uh, I would absolutely pick Wilder. I think Depp would have creeped me out at any point mm-hmm. in my life. So I think, yeah, I think as a kid, I'd pick Wilder. Today, maybe Chalamet. <laughs> the only answer is Gene Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> 
he is everything. He is Wonka. You know, it's funny that Peter Sellers really wanted to play Wonka. He was like mm. begging Mel to play. And I could see him doing this, but I feel like Gene has something special and Timmy might be great. I don't know about the other one that never happened to me, that other version, but <laughs> I, I love, I love Gene as Wonka. I mean, I get why they try to remake it and do origin stories and all of that, but to me, like, there will never be another Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Like, this is it. And mm-hmm. I would absolutely pick Gene Wilder. I just, I love him in this part. I think he's just amazing. I also definitely had a crush on him as a child in this part, too, which is really <laughs> weird. But I'll admit it today on the pod. <laughs> it tracks, kind of. It kind of does. <laughs> So speaking about Oscars, did this deserve more nominations or wins? Yes. (laughs) That's crazy to me. Here's my biggest question mark of the whole year. Fiddler on the Roof is the number one movie of the year. Mm -hmm. It's a Best Picture nomination. I found that to be a very kind of lumbering, long-winded, three-hour musical that we would get a lot in the 60s. Why is that movie so popular both with critics and audiences in 71 and Willy Wonka is kind of pushed aside just a much better movie. I think in every respect, it just, it, that really baffles me that audience didn't respond to it, that it didn't get at least some technical, more technical nominations at the Oscars. I mean, it came out in June, right? So mm-hmm. it had been like Fiddler on the Roof came out in November. So that kind of makes sense. It's closer, but how did audiences not love Willy Wonka in the summer of 71? I was going to say like Fiddler on the Roof, I would replace like almost all of its nominations with Willy Wonka. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Best actor for Topol, Gene Wilder. Come on. Gene Wilder <laughs> as Willy Wonka is an iconic role in performance. He deserves a nomination here. It is like classic Golden Globe musical or comedy, but like any of the original songs too. I mean, there we have a ton of songs to pick from. Like one of those could have gotten in. Art direction for sure. Costume design. And I think Julie Don Cole could have made supporting actress. I mean, they awarded kids here and there. I mean, just two Mm -hmm. years later, they would give Tatum O'Neill the award for best supporting actress. I just think Julie Don Cole is amazing in this. And I think she's better than Margaret Layton in the (laughs) (laughs) go-go. Even art direction for me, like, why not? Nobody is thinking of these things. It's total imagination. I don't need another period set. You know, this is different than anything that had been done. Yeah. So Nicholas and Alexandra won. They nominated the Andromeda strain for art direction. Like what's happening? What's what's going on? Uh, Willy Wonka absolutely deserved a nomination for art direction. Come on. And with the category, this is for a score, right? Like this is, it has a weird wording, original and adaptation song score, but this is like score. It's very confusing. There's original dramatic score category. There's mm-hmm. best scoring adaptation and original song score. And then there's best original song. I don't, I don't yeah. really understand the difference between the two scoring yeah. categories. I think that dramatic score is like what we think of now, usually with a score. And the adaptation and original song score was when musicals were still super popular. So that's where like Fiddler on the Roof, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, like those Willy Wonka, those appear where we have more vocals. Yeah, that was John Williams' first Oscar win was for Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. We think of him as Spielberg and Star Wars. This One of his five wins was for Fiddler. Well. <laughs> Good on you, John. 
I think we kind of covered this, but like Gene Wilder got nominated for a Globe, not an Oscar. Yeah. Would he be in your Oscar five for best actor? Gene Hackman, who we'll talk about, he won best actor for The French Connection. Our other nominees, we had Peter Finch in Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Walter Matthau in Koch, George C. Scott for The Hospital, and Topol for Fiddler on the Roof. I'm guessing the two of you have not seen Koch with Walter Matthau. Have either of you seen that? Have not. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a good performance. My guest was very mad at me, and uh, it was pretty rough. How in the world did Walter Matthau get in here for Koch? I mean, say what you want about Clockwork Orange. Malcolm McDowell is incredible in that movie. He's in like every scene for two plus hours. Yeah. How did that performance not get nominated? And I think absolutely Gene Wilder for Willy Wonka absolutely deserved to be nominated this year for Best Lead Actor. I think it's hard because he's not in the first half hour. I think he's in enough of it that you would would argue it's for lead. But I do think that hurt his chances maybe that he's not in the Mm. first half hour. Well, let's put him in supporting then. <laughs> I was just going to say, let's let's join this with the next question. How would today's Academy receive this movie? And while we're at it, if it's being made today, we're putting him in supporting and he's going to get a nomination, maybe a win. You know, why not? He's at least replacing Roy Scheider for me from the French Connection. Um, not that he was bad. We'll get to that. But he would absolutely get in. I would make this happen. Mm. Like he deserves mm. to be in as a nomination. Yeah. Right. Maybe if they had called it Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and we'd really made Charlie the lead and you could argue that Willy Wonka was the supporting, Mm -hmm. he's not in the first half hour. Maybe we could have argued that that could be supporting actor. Mm -hmm. I mean, if Jamie Foxx can get a supporting actor nomination for Collateral, where he's in every scene, (laughs) I think we can argue that that Gene Wilder can get in for supporting actor. I mean, category fraud it up. Like (laughs) Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... Let's get Gene Wilder his win. That is like if this were today's Academy, I feel like this would be like the popular musical. It's so fun. I know we would work really hard to push Gene Wilder and to get people on board to vote for him. I think people still had an appetite somewhat for musicals. I mean, we weren't totally like, yes, we have the French connection, but I feel like people still love musicals even today. So I think it would do well, hopefully better than it did back then. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would I would give it to Gene Wilder, whether it's supporting actor or lead actor. I mean, I think there's so many other places this movie could win in, the music and the art direction. But I think the takeaway always is his performance. I think the wrong actor in that role, we wouldn't be talking about the movie today. Mm-hmm. I think that's what cemented the legacy of Willy Wonka was the Gene Wilder performance. So I would give it to him. Yeah. Nick, what about you? I agree. I think song is my close second apart from art direction. Gene Wilder. Yeah. Easy. I mean, my real answer is art direction. My cheat answer is Gene Wilder for supporting actor. I'll keep Hackman (laughs) in lead, but I'm going to go Gene Wilder in supporting. Okay. On to our best picture and best director winner at the French Connection. Description here, a pair of NYPD detectives in the Narcotics Bureau stumble onto a heroin smuggling ring based in Marseille, but stopping them and capturing their leaders proves an elusive goal. This was directed by William Friedkin, and it was written by Ernest Tidyman based on the book by Robin Moore. It stars Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, and Fernando Ray. Oscars and other awards here precursors at the BAFTAs Hackman won actor and it won editing Golden Globes it won motion picture drama actor drama for Hackman and director it won the DGA the WGA 
New York Film Critics Circle, Hackman, also won actor and runner-up for best film. And at the Oscars, it won five and big ones, picture, director, actor for Hackman, adapted screenplay and editing. And it was nominated for three others, supporting actor for Scheider, cinematography and sound. So what did you guys think of The French Connection? It's a huge Oscar movie this year. Brian, we can start with you. When did you first see The French Connection? And what do you think of it? Yeah, I think I saw it for the first time in high school. I've always really taken to this movie. This is a great example of like early 70s cinema. It's one of mm-hmm. those movies I feel like was pushing the film medium forward, not backwards. It's just so fresh. It doesn't feel like it was made in 71. It feels like it's more like 76 or 78. It like just so so much forward thinking. And I'm a huge Gene Hackman fan. It's one of his best performances. He is just electric in this. William Friedkin, who really hadn't shown what he was capable of before this. I mean, right before this movie, he does the boys in the band, right? Like an ensemble mm-hmm. drama kind of. And and for him to go from that to this, it's just such a daring movie. It moves really fast. Great villain. Hackman just at the top of his game. And I mean, the car chase is just iconic. It's just, I mean, it's like 10 plus minutes. It's so long. And the just the editing and the pacing of that scene I mean, we've seen almost nothing like it since. It's just so amazing. It's a great movie. This movie is known for that scene, but there is so much more to it. It immediately draws you in. It's a little mysterious and also didn't know was a real story at the very end. I was like, oh my God. So kind of elevated it in a weird way. Really like the, well, liking the performances is not really the thing to say. I mean, it's, so easy to hate Gene Hackman's mm. character here. Mm-hmm. And I liked that it was so over the top and racist because they were basing it on the real cop. Mm-hmm. And Gene hated that. He he didn't want to play this character. And he wanted to bail from the movie for other reasons too, notably Friedkin. But, you know, it got him this award kind of in a similar way to Cloris Leachman earlier. It's like, they know what they're doing. Just, you know, trust the process. So this is an electric movie, another New York movie. It, it captures the city. Well, this like grittier side you're in Brooklyn. Yeah. Some of the like Brooklyn parts, I was like, Oh, I know where that is. Or I would like look up the street name mm-hmm. and see where it was. And I'd be like, Oh, that's like scary close to me. I really love this movie. I think that it's like perfect for Friedkin's documentary style filmmaking that we've seen many times but it feels like so lean and mean and brand new in the 70s you know like new hollywood is so rooted in the french new wave and friedkin like was so influenced by godard and breathless and i love here that we have a literal french connection right we have that in the story Mm -hmm. but we also have it in the filmmaking a lot of the french new wave techniques are coming in here and i really love that the way that we start in france friedkin he thought if you had a murder right away in the movie, your audience would forgive you for any exposition. They would stay. And I believe that. I mean, you definitely are around for that because it grips you right away and you want to know more. And it reminded me a lot of how the exorcist actually opens in Iraq. Mm. And at first you're kind of like, why is this happening? I don't get this. And then all of a sudden you're Mm. in DC and that is very similar, I think. And he's very good at connecting locations and actors and stories in different places. And I think 
It's really well directed. The performances are amazing. It's a character based film in a similar way to Clute and to Last Picture Show, but it just has like so many great action sequences in it that you really can't look away from. And I feel like audiences back then would have just like been on the edge of their seat the whole time, whether it was that famous car chase scene um, with the train, which had never been done before Mm -hmm. and was illegal. (laughs) Like he was not allowed to do that at all. Or just the scene with Fernando Ray's character, Charnier, on the subway. I love that scene where Popeye Doyle's being, I think, pretty obvious, like with him on the train, like tailing him, but they just keep getting on and off. I love that scene. Mm -hmm. Love it. So good. Yeah, that's my favorite scene, even more so than the chase. I love the scene on the subway. It's so well done. Like just (laughs) when he sticks his cane in the door to get out. Oh, my God. (laughs) I love how we open too, because I think that, you know, we don't like open with these two narcotics officers like in their homes and we're at the office, like a typical, I think, crime procedural would or like a cop show or movie that would even come after this. Like we see them right away, like on a bust and you learn so much so quickly about both of these characters. I think specifically about Popeye Doyle being this pretty serious anti-hero like pre Tony Soprano and Walter White and all those guys that we get in our generation later he's a bad guy he's hard to root for obviously but you still at least I am I think Hackman his like authenticity as an actor like really made me like want to know everything about this character even though he was pretty vile and hard to root for at times and I think it's funny how he was Friedkin's seventh choice to play this character. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh no. I do think it's interesting that Gene Hackman wanted out of the movie, didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Jane Fonda wanted out of Clue, didn't want to do it. Like, what are they thinking as they walk up on stage to collect their Academy Award? I know. (laughs) Like, oh, maybe it it worked out. It worked out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So on Wikipedia, it says Paul Newman was the first choice. Ooh. He was out of their budget range. He's too pretty. Peter Boyle would have been interesting, like a young Peter Boyle. He had just Mm -hmm. done a film called Joe, which I saw last year. It was a 1970 movie, and he was really great in it. And it kind of has a feeling of the Popeye character in French Connection. I think Mm -hmm. that would have worked. But I think Hackman was the right choice here. Mm -hmm. The other big one was Steve McQueen, but he didn't want to play another cop after being in Bullet. Mm. Mm. He might have been good, too. Yeah, I think Steve McQueen almost has too much history like in that genre for it, especially because Friedkin with the train car chase scene was really influenced by Bullet. He wanted to make it diff- very different than Bullet, like obviously inspired by it, but he was like thinking about the movie and he heard a train going by above him and that's where he got the idea like okay, I need this car chase scene to happen, but what about a train? Like, what if it was with the train? And the fact that Gene drove the car during some of that sequence, too. Friedkin was, through part of it, filming in the back seat with the camera, with the stunt guy. But then also Gene was driving. There's so so many documentary elements, like you said, so many real elements. The beginning, when he's wearing the Santa costume, a lot of this was taken from how the real cops functioned and how they how they brainstormed and found new ways to um, arrest people. But I think the Santa costume is a little ingenious. It is a Christmas movie after all. (laughs) (laughs) 
it is pretty scary to think about like that car chase that i mean there are shots where there are people driving next to them who are not part of the scene like it's kind of crazy to think i mean i don't think you could do that now like what was gene hackman thinking at the time like he had been in bonnie and clyde he had done some big films before this and he's on set like really we're just gonna drive i'm just driving okay (laughs) you think he would have been like no guys come on let's get some stunt drivers i don't know maybe they're running out of time the conductor, the guy running the train, he was like, I'll do this for you, but I want $40,000 and a one-way ticket to Jamaica. Oh. And he was like, why? And he was like, because I'm going to get fired after <laughs> this movie comes out. And he did. <laughs> and they still don't know where he is to this day. Oh, oh wow. my God. <laughs> so that's why it was because he did this sequence that was completely illegal. Like not having all of your permits to do this chase scene. That would not fly today. There's no way this movie is being made today. Like you said, some of those cars, some of those people weren't stunt people and them navigating all of that freehand. mm That's that like makes me anxious thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, you hear about some things that he did on set. We talked about this when we talked about the exorcist. Yeah. Wouldn't he put down Gene Hackman like in the beginning to like, get him into that place in his character like he would mm-hmm. he would say do it again was you know like he he would do it in a way that kind of put him down as a person and to get the performance he wanted that's a tricky question right because if you're really really nice and loving to the actor and you get a really terrible performance out of them so it's like well where's the balance there mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and nick what is your favorite scene i know that's an easy choice but it has to be the car chase, but I think specifically about it, the fact that they edit so well between, I think, like three different perspectives, mm-hmm. especially with that camera on the front of the car. Mm-hmm. Having that and realizing that it's actually what's being filmed when they're driving this, it wasn't filmed separately. That is crazy. Like you can even see, I think it's like him noticing that there were cars that weren't supposed to be there and he like swerves a little and you see that in the camera movement. Mm -hmm. I really love that. So, I mean, just the pacing, this really long scene and it holds up. You're like on the edge of your seat the entire time you're looking up at the train. You're, you're looking, you know, who's coming car wise. Is he going to crash? Is he going to catch him? Are they going to stop the train? The conductor is having a heart attack. Like there's a lot happening and it it's all done perfectly. Yeah, the editing in this is just phenomenal. I think it keeps you on the edge of your seat the entire movie. And we also got a question from the Futurist. In Popeye Doyle's obsessed hunt for the Frenchman, which is Melvillian, like Ahab and the White Whale, in its way, what do you surmise from the dark existential ending of the movie? Ooh, I love the ending of this. I've like I had seen it many, many years ago and then just a few months ago, I watched it again, and I'm like, oh, right. It doesn't end with them catching the guys. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's, we were with them a while at the end there. Like, they're getting close, and we get the classic Hackman wave, which is one of the best plantings and payoffs in movie history. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what kind of makes this movie so memorable, is that it doesn't have your classic Hollywood ending where, that, where they catch the killers. I like that it's just left open-ended, and you don't know what happens next, and you know, you have to do your research on what actually happened. But I think that's what makes this movie so special is that it doesn't end in a way that you expect it to. Well, and also that all of the characters or almost all of them got off or their sentences were reduced Mm -hmm. or they didn't go to jail. And it's like this entire movie. And I feel like what Eddie Egan, that officer did, you know, they tried so hard to find and make this bust and 
nothing was realized. And I think another fascinating part to this is that a year after this film's release, the huge cachet of heroin that they found, the 120 pounds that the New York cop sees disappeared. I think that just adds to this ending and it's scary. It's like, how did he get away? But it happens. That's life. There is a sequel to the movie, the French connection too. Have you, have you seen that? <laughs> I have not starring Hackman. I, I, I've never seen it. I don't know if it answers any questions that the movie leaves you with at the end. The first one, I think it's a whole new story. I haven't seen it, but I also really love this ending. I think one of the first things I notice when I'm watching this movie is just how addicted Popeye Doyle seems to be to his job. Like he is staying up all night. He's not sleeping. He's just so addicted to this chase and he will not listen to anyone else. He's like very, very stubborn and determined in his pursuit. And like that is very Melvillian. I agree. Like it connects very well to Moby Dick. I think that like thinking about it in that way too, like with what he is addicted to this whole movie, it's all about this drug, right? And like people being addicted to this drug and him trying to bust these people and treat people really terribly. And it's like, what is what he's doing that much better, right? Like he is addicted in a different way, right? To something else. And throughout the movie too, he, we learn that, a police officer died in one of his earlier pursuits. And then at the very end, he kills an FBI agent and literally does not react to it. (laughs) (laughs) And you as an audience, you're like, Oh my God, like, what did he just do? But he has no, he's so determined and single-minded like in this pursuit that when it ends this way, you're like, this is the only way it could have ended. Like he is just like stuck on this loop and he can't get off unless he's forced off. I love that. (laughs) That's great. I just thought about when they're destroying that car too. That makes me so sick. And they're like just tearing it apart and you think he's wrong, but he's actually right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think during the car chase, they actually hit someone's car and they had to pay for it. Like someone not affiliated with the movie. (laughs) Some guy just driving along like, what's going on over here? (laughs) So the cop team, their real names are Jimmy Popeye Doyle and Buddy Cloudy Russo, which I think their nicknames are funny, but... The bar where Popeye makes the drug milkshake, the guy who took over the bar opened an iconic restaurant and named it Popeye's after the cop's name, the nickname. The fact that we have Popeye's fried chicken named after this. (laughs) Wait, that's what it's named after? Brutal cop. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Is named yeah. after this guy? Oh, I didn't yes. know that. Interesting. <laughs> Wait, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. so, oh my God. Fun fact. <laughs> so I think going to Oscar stuff, why do you think this won Best Picture and Best Director? This was just the movie of the moment. This was the one that everyone liked the most as you know, an ensemble of people. Like I'm sure many people had more passion for like Last Picture Show or maybe even Fiddler. But I think the one that everyone can kind of agree on liking at the time was probably this one. It's probably why it took the top three category. From what I read about this year is that it was really more between Fiddler and French Connection than Mm -hmm. it was for The Last Picture Show. Yeah. So in that way, to me, it makes sense that 
French connection would take everything. Like I said earlier, it was just, it's a more intense movie, it, more mass appeal. Fiddler did have a higher box office, but I think still it's a three hour adaptation of a musical. We've talked about this before with My Fair Lady. <laughs> um, to me, I would have chosen picture and director here. I think even over Kubrick, I know he, he never won, but I would give it to him for something other than uh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah. It's just, if it's between Fiddler and the French Connection, it's like out with the old, in with the new. I mean, this really is like, this is our tone that we're setting for the rest of the decade with our Best Picture winners and with our Oscar nominees. So I think it's deserving. Um, I know we have really good movies this year, but I'm not going to complain, I think, about this one winning. And I get why it connected with audiences. Same with director. I mean, we talk about this today, too, like... The directors who pull off the big things are the ones who win usually. And like Friedkin, I mean, I can imagine people hearing those stories about the chase scenes and how he figured that out and just being really impressed and wanting to award him there. I do. I think he deserves it too. Yeah, I feel it's a more exciting choice than the previous year's Patton. It's a little bit more of a safe kind of general choice like you would see. I feel like the French Connection isn't your obvious go-to for best picture of the year. It is kind of a genre movie, an action movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be like, it, like I mentioned the movie Collateral earlier. It'd be almost like in 04 if like Collateral had won this picture or something really kind of dangerous like that. That mm-hmm. wasn't just your typical. So I think, I, I think that's really cool too, that French Connection would beat out something that's potentially safer, like a fiddler on the roof. So that's, that I think is really great. And what do you think about Hackman's win? And we haven't really talked about Roy Schneider yet, but after we talk about lead, we can talk about supporting if we think Scheider deserved to beat Johnson or not. I would actually, my choice for actor here is Peter Finch in Sunday Bloody Sunday. He was amazing in that movie. Have either of you seen that movie? I love Sunday Bloody Sunday. It's a great <laughs> movie. Yeah. Yeah, he plays a gay, a gay man, very confident gay man, and just like a dangerous role for Peter Finch in 1970, 1971. And I just think he plays it with such finesse, such a three-dimensional character. And he's just wonderful in that. I might tip my hat to that performance slightly over Hackman in this. But Hackman would never win a lead actor Oscar again. He won supporting for Unforgiven in the early 90s. So this would have been his only chance to win as a lead. And I just think he is one of our best. And so I'm happy. I'm happy that he won here. I think he was Mm -hmm. deserving. I agree. I love him in this movie. Like, I don't love the character, but I love Hackman's performance because... I mean, obviously, like actors are not their characters, like we have to separate that. But I think he really committed to it. He would like shadow Egan, basically the cop he was based on, um, to see how this character would behave and get ideas from him of what this character would do in certain situations. I think his performance is just like, it's really restless. I mentioned he you believe that he's just addicted to this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. He's very sly. I love it. I think it's a great performance. I love the wave at the end. I think you believe him in every moment of this movie. Um, it also, I mean, he's one of my favorite actors, like probably ever too. So very happy that he won. And with Scheider quickly, I I don't think he has that much to do here. It's much more of the Popeye Doyle show to me. I probably would still give it to Ben Johnson over him. Yeah, I think Scheider's nomination was the indicator that this movie was going to win. (laughs) If you you look at that performance by Scheider in French Connection, oh, that's a nomination. I mean, that shows you they loved this movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would have actually nominated Scheider for his performance in Clute. Yeah. I thought was he was played a little bit dirtier of a guy in that. Like, Mm -hmm. I I feel like his performance in Clute 
is more memorable than his one in French Connection. I agree with that. He almost plays safe here and mm-hmm. it's not bad. It's just not enough. It's it's more so Gene Hackman's movie and role, performance, um, transformation, all of that. Yeah, I would go as far as to say the best supporting actor lineup for 71 is a little weak. There's not, to me, there's not one performance in there that I'm like, oh yeah, that was amazing. It has to be nominated. All five are like, you could say it's fine. As I said before, I thought Richard Jekyll was really astonishing in one scene of Sometimes a Great Notion. Outside of that scene, he doesn't get a whole lot to do. So yeah, I think the lineup for supporting actor for 71 isn't one of our best, but it happens sometimes. And then how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? And we can combine that with, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I don't think it would be as well received today. I think we've seen so many movies like The French Connection in the last 50 years. I don't think, I think it could do well at the box office. People would see it if it had a really great lead actor. I don't think this movie today would be winning Best Picture. I just don't think, I think it was fresh in 71. I don't think it's as fresh now. And if I had to pick, I think I would give it to Friedkin for director. I think the directing in this is really astonishing. I love just the way it's paced. And he's bringing things to this movie that we weren't seeing a whole lot in 70, 71. I mean, Get Carter came out earlier this year. We haven't mentioned that title yet with Michael Caine. That's also a very kind of fast-paced, dangerous cop movie. It's really great. They would have probably shot French Connection before Get Carter came out. So it's not like Friedkin was looking at that one for pointers. But this is a good this is a good year for this kind of action thriller genre really coming of age and showing mm-hmm. what directors can do under these circumstances. Such a such a, a great film for its period. I don't know if it came out today if the Academy would recognize it the same way they did then. I think it's interesting how the top three movies this year, Fiddler, French Connection, and The Last Picture Show all had eight nominations and they all performed differently. I would still put the French Connection pretty high. That would, to me, be one of the most nominated movies of the year if it were made now. And I could definitely see it being a split kind of opposite to you, Brian. I could see it winning picture, but now I i mean, I could see it either way. If we had like a really strong musical adaptation, I don't know, like this in West Side Story. I don't see that split <laughs> happening, <laughs> oh gosh. but that vibe i don't know i mean i i love that at one i think it was well deserved and i would give it editing yeah i'm kind of torn i do think this movie would get a lot of technical nominations but it does feel kind of like it won because it was the first like it was so new at the time and i think if something that new came out today like they would hopefully reward it in the same way right like so many follow this um but i also think this movie fails on the preferential ballot like I could see people thinking it was like too dark or like the ending being really tough for them. So it could maybe be a little lower on ballots or like not work as well with that as, you know, certain crowd pleasers tend to go. And this, I feel like, oh. I don't know if I would call this a crowd pleaser necessarily. I mean, we all liked it, but, and if I could give this movie one Oscar, I would also give Friedkin director. Did I give him director for the exorcist too? I feel it. I I think we both did. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Editing would be my other choice. I, even though I love Hackman, I feel like the technical work is really what stands out to me here. Mm-hmm. But preferential, are you saying Fiddler's going to win? Ugh. <laughs> I, What's your winner? 
It's not the last picture show. No, I think I it don't would think be, that... I think it would be Fiddler. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't you be agree? Clockwork. No. It would not be. It's Nicholas. not Clockwork. It would be no. Fiddler. no, it would be Fiddler. I think. Interesting. Well, on that note, <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for being here today with us. Um, tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is so much fun to talk to you guys about. It's a really interesting year in film, 1971. Uh, you can find me online. I'm at filmat50.com. My podcast, Film at 50, we talk about movies from 50 years ago. We'll be continuing into 1972. February, we're talking Cabaret. March, we're talking The Godfather. Oh my Some God. big titles coming yes. up. To very excited about and yeah we're on facebook twitter and instagram and i just started a new youtube channel it's just my name brian Rowe, and i'm doing video essays i'm working on my first oscar history video essay right now Ooh. about the 1997 supporting actress race between juliette binoche and lauren bacall which was a really interesting oh, wow. race back in the mid 90s so i'll be doing some oscar history video essays coming up here so look for those too you mentioning Cabaret really quick. I didn't mention yeah. this with Willy Wonka, but they were shot on the same soundstage. Oh, really? I, did, I don't know a whole lot about the background of Cabaret. I'm excited to dive in here in the coming weeks. So what is one thing you're wild for, Brian? If you want it to be a movie, a book, TV show, anything, anything. What is one thing I'm wild for? One thing I'm wild for is my favorite movie of all time, Sunset Boulevard from 1950. Ooh. It's a movie I watch maybe twice a year. I could watch it all the time i don't know if either of you have seen sunset boulevard but it is just one of the greats that's one thing i'm always wild for the great (laughs) sunset boulevard i love it controversially a few episodes ago i told nick that i would have voted for gloria swanson over the great betty davis for 1950 so i'm with you (laughs) oh yeah absolutely that one it it boggles my mind that it went to judy holiday that one Mm -hmm. just i don't get that one yeah (laughs) Gloria deserved it. Yes, <laughs> I agree. Wild for Billy Wilder. Yes. <laughs> Next time on Oscar Wild, we'll be talking about four November releases, House of Gucci, Tick, Tick, Boom, Encanto, and The Humans. Four very different movies, all different platforms. House of Gucci is in theaters. Tick, Tick, Boom is on Netflix. Encanto is Disney, soon to be on Disney Plus in December. And then The Humans is on Showtime and also in theaters. It'll be fun to talk about these with you. I'm excited to talk about these. I'm sure we have very different reactions to all of them. I'm very excited in particular to talk about House of Gucci. But thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.